The end of the year is fast approaching, and this year the Cooch Street Podcast is doing something a little different. We're inviting 24 creators of some of this year's best and most interesting books to join us for 10 minutes or so to talk about what they're reading now, their favorite holiday reads, what they had out this year, and what's coming out in the year ahead. It's a Cooch Street advent calendar, if that's your sort of thing, or just a run-up to the holidays for book lovers. Today I'm joined by the wonderful Toshi Onyabuchi. Hello, Toshi. Hello. Hello. Long time no see. Long, long time no here. <laughs> exactly. Like since since like way, way back before you know, the very early stages of the of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. When, when life was weird but simple. Yeah. Yes. That is that is a very accurate <laughs> it was complicated but simple. Yes. It really, really was. So how have you been? How have you been functioning, working through all of this craziness? Oh my good you know, I mean the my my most usual trauma response is to work. And so I've just been <laughs> No, but I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful. My family is well and has been well over the past couple of years. Um, there are a number of healthcare professionals in my family. And so things were very dicey at first, but um, they, they acclimated <laughs> to the circumstances <laughs> much more easily and much more quickly than than I did but you know we are we are happy and healthy uh and you know I'm I'm managing to get work done and you know really very interestingly being pushed into reevaluations healthy reevaluations of concepts in my life such as community and love mm-hmm. and relationships and things of that sort so you know I, I, all things considered i can't complain <laughs> you've had a pretty good pandemic then yeah 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 i've been very fortunate i've been very fortunate <laughs> and I mean, sort of through all this time have you been able to to read and to function or did you find as some people do that you came to a real stop for a while I am naturally a homebody, so I can perform mm-hmm. extroversion very, very, very well. I was, you know, trained from when I was a young Padawan to be able to to perform healthy social function for others. But at heart, I am an introvert. So, you know, my ideal weekend is, you know, curled up on a rainy, you know, uh, Saturday morning afternoon with a good book and then you know the the sun drops and I fire up whatever video game console I'm feeling uh, <laughs> at that particular time and I just game and and you know because I'm so I've, I've always been so focused on on art art consumption and art production that that is where I locate a lot of my joy and so you know everybody was you know Nintendo Switches were selling out, but I felt I was already ahead of the curve. And then I managed to get myself, uh, I managed to get my hands on these next generation consoles and it it was a wrap. I didn't want to see anybody. (laughs) Uh, So it's been, you know, I felt uh, particularly well prepared psychically for for this. Um, You know, if normally when there was any sort of anxiety, it was with regards to concern for others, you know, for my loved ones and whatnot who worked in hospitals or who, you know, for various reasons of of work or what have you had to be, you know, outside for various reasons. Um, But me personally, I, I, I'm doing, I was doing all right. That's great. I mean, one thing I do find when I talk to someone who's naturally a little bit introverted and wants to stay home but can go out and extrovert is that across the length of this time, these three years nearly, 
you reach a point where that taps out and you suddenly realize there is a part where you naturally need some of that mm-hmm. input mm-hmm. from the outside world as well. Did you reach that point? Oh, absolutely. And it's one of those things where I didn't realize how much I I I needed it until I like got it or caught a glimpse yeah. of it or got a taste of it. It's like, wow, I really miss this. Oh my goodness, what's <laughs> happening to me? And it's like, what's happening to you, Toji, is that you're a, a regular human being. <laughs> you're not you're you're you don't have the superpower of of continuous introversion. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it's it's kind of in a way easy to be introverted when the extroverted part of thing is completely on tap but when it's cut off it's a whole other thing yes yes absolutely absolutely so let me ask you i mean uh have you been reading have you read anything lately that you'd recommend oh my goodness i've been i've been reading like a fiend um i it's so funny i so much of my reading happens outside of the genre and i think part of that is just the the um omnivorous nature of my interests, but also my artistic inputs. I recently finished, um, oddly enough, an oral history of HBO. Oh, okay. Yeah. The book is titled Tinderbox by James Andrew Miller, I believe is the author's name. And it goes all the way from, from the beginnings of HBO as like some odd cable innovation in the 70s, trying to basically get ahead of the curve in terms of the personalization and curation of entertainment in people's homes um, and, you know, sort of monetizing the exclusivity of that all the way through, you know, their, their comedy beginnings where they very much fashion themselves as a home for comics who felt restricted by network TV to really just like let loose and have that and do particular types of specials that would not have passed muster, um, you know, when widely distributed through the, the sort of golden age of TV with Oz and the Sopranos into the aftermath. There's, and there's all types of Game of Thrones level corporate warfare and backstabbing going on, people after each other's jobs. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's incredible. But what's, what was wonderful about it too was getting to hear from creators themselves, Alan Ball, yeah. who did, who's, who's most known for, for American Beauty and Six Feet Under, you know, talks extensively about his working process with HBO. Terrence Winter, who was a writer on The Sopranos and then went on to create Boardwalk Empire, he also makes a cameo appearance. Um, you know, one of the sort of one of the very interesting, you know, black holes in the book, um, in a sort of you know, Frank Sinatra has a cold type of situation is James Gandolfini, who, you know, unfortunately mm-hmm. had passed by the time the the book was underway. But you can very much sense so much of the conversation orbit around him and his impact, not just on HBO, but on the entire television landscape, sure, and, sure. you know, creators in general. And what have you? So it was absolutely fast. It was like nine hundred pages, and I, I, I'm not a fast reader, but I went through that in like three days. <laughs> Do you find reading that kind of thing? Because I mean, what I find talking to, particularly to writers as opposed to non-writers, is you know, rather than reading a lot of the contemporary work in the field you're in regularly, you're reading a lot of other material that becomes, you know, that feed in for what you're doing as well, even if you you sort of, you don't mean it to be. Do you find it's books like this uh, end up feeding into your work? Absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of what I do in terms of reading is 
intentional research. Uh, and so some of that is subject matter related, but some of it too is with regards to form and structure. If sure. a particular author is is managing to pull off something that I want to try in my own book or a variation of which I want to try in my own book, I'll read that and consider that research. Um, a lot of other stuff is sort of indirect research in that you know I have various magazine subscriptions and I'll read essays and articles in them that will plant seeds that uh, will grow into something the shape of the shape and size of which I, I won't be able to know until years down the line. Um, <laughs> so there is a lot of that. It's, it's funny. I am, I am so catastrophically poorly read in my <laughs> field, at least, you know, when it comes to contemporary stuff, I, I feel I am, you know, unless I'm blurbing something, I feel like I am, you know, best case scenario, perpetually like two or three or four years behind. <laughs> were, were you a um, a voracious reader of genre fiction when you were growing up? Though? I mean, that must have been sort of the part of the input, the kickstart to what you're doing. Uh, to a certain extent, I, although I will say most of my narrative education came from the televisual mediums. So mm -hmm. I was a huge anime fan as a kid and still sure. am, you know, Toonami, that that programming block on Cartoon Network from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern uh, basically raised me. You know, it brought yeah. in many ways it 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 introduced an American audience to uh, Dragon Ball Z, to Gundam Wing, to uh, Outlaw Star, Cowboy Bebop, Samurai Champloo, so many seminal programs that, uh, you know, the the fingerprints of which you can see in TV and books and movies sure, that are coming sure. out now. And that was that, you know, in many ways, that's where I learned how to tell story. And while I was watching those things, I was reading things like John le Carre, who's my, you know, one of my favorite novelists of all time, the spy who came in from the cold. I encountered that sometime in, I want to say, uh, early high school and it changed my life. Yeah. It absolutely changed my life. And so I was, I was wanting to write spy thrillers while at the same time, you know, watching <laughs> shows about space pirates and, and bounty hunters and whatnot. And so it was, it made for a very, uh, very widespread, uh, narrative education. So you had a, a new novel out earlier in the year. It was very successful, widely ported, all kinds of very justified, uh, you know, you know, plaudits along the way. Let me ask you a question. How did you come in 2022 to be putting out a near future pandemic novel? Oh my goodness. What's wild about it is that the very first draft of it, um, much of which exists uh, in, in the current final form, uh, was written in 2015. In the spring of 2015, okay. uh, I was in Paris at the time. I was part of a dual degree program uh, where I would do two years of law school in New York, and then I would do my final year in Paris at uh, mm -hmm. Sciences Po. And it was such a creatively regenerative year. It was very much my James Baldwin year. And so mm -hmm. I got a ton of writing done. And Goliath actually grew out of a short story that I had written in 2013 when I was in the okay. West Bank doing doing human rights work with uh, Palestinian Arab detainees. And there, you know, the the people wearing face masks to do work that, you know, was 
uh, physically hazardous and the, you know, the, the divorce between the, the situation faced by the underclass versus the predominantly white upper class, you know, I, that it was all there. And then, you know, the, the pandemic is happening and it's like, uh, yeah. I don't, but like, what's interesting about it is that, you know, um, science fiction tends to have this reputation deserved or undeserved of predicting the future. And, you know, I have a bit of a contentious relationship with that because I do believe that so much of what science fiction writers are writing about, uh, are timeless issues. You know, the, particularly mm -hmm. you look at the work of Octavia Butler, you know, those stories that were set in the future were responding to things that were happening in her life and in her world at that time. Yes. And historically, you know, similarly for me and, and Riot Baby, it was actually a point of the book, the interminability of state oppression of uh, mm -hmm. Black Americans. So with Goliath, of course, there are going to be uh, socioeconomic and racial divides in the in the response to a public health crisis uh, on behalf of government authorities, and so it like it was it was all very 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 interesting to see unfold. Well, having like started the short story in twenty thirteen begun a draft or written a draft in 2015 and then i'm going to make a guess that riot baby came out and was so successful and you had to do another thing and it's picking up uh, goliath did it change onto your hands as you were finishing it because you were then in a pandemic as you were finishing it what's interesting about it is goliath actually started a lot of my publishing journey um it was the the book that got my foot in the door oddly enough in in young adult literature um and it's the book that got me my agent uh and what's interesting about it it was a much shorter novel um when first written and you know, as I would continue to read and as I would continue to write, I had the intimation that there was a much bigger, much more scopic and much better novel lurking somewhere in that draft. But I didn't feel up to the task. I didn't feel like I was able to do it. So year after year would pass where I would look back over yeah. my shoulder and ask myself, okay, am I ready to write Goliath as I know it can exist? And the answer over and over and over again was no. Even with Riot Baby, I was like, surely now I'm good enough to write the book. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know that the answer that, that the answer at the time was yes, until eventually, um, you know, I signed a contract and sold Goliath. And I was like, OK, I guess I got to make it that book. now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess there's that thing, isn't there? That, I mean, one of the things that happens in the world, there are all kinds of reasons that a piece of art comes into existence. But there is also that thing like, oh, I signed a contract now. <laughs> it felt like a great idea right at that moment. Like they wanted it. I, I we, we negotiated the contract. I signed the contract. That's fantastic. And then there's a moment where you go, oh, now I have to do this thing. <laughs> Yes. And it's funny because that emotional posture and that mental posture would have been unthinkable to me as a, you know, a young kid writing novels, querying agents, trying to get published, right? Sure. That idea that, oh, I like the signing of the contract is the mountaintop, right? Yeah. Once you get there, it's all good, right? But then <laughs> you get there and you're like, oh man, so there's there's more that it's more that I have to do. I have to oh, oh. Okay, interesting. How are we going to do that? <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, I mean, uh, Goliath is your first novel for adults, mm -hmm. per se, or at least in terms of marketing and sales. How different was that from having worked on the Beast Made of Night and War Girl novel? It's interesting because 
those those young adult novels were actually perfect training, uh, oddly enough, for Goliath. When I was younger, oftentimes I like I love prose. I love, love, love prose. I love sentences um, to the point of eroticism. And I would often get caught up in my own writing of writing beautiful sentences for the sake of beautiful sentences. Sometimes they wouldn't even mean anything. They would just sound (laughs) and feel good. Um, You know, I was I was very much an, an acolyte of of John Crowley, um, who most famously wrote Little Big. And in terms of the, you know, gorgeous sentences per page, I don't know that he can be beat, right? But of course, he's good enough that they all mean something. All those sentences mean something. They serve a purpose. (laughs) Um, But uh, writing YA, it's very much a matter of uh, focusing on clarity. And that was the thing that I really learned was that if things aren't clear for the reader, then you're not serving the story. You can, you mm-hmm. know, it's not as though, it's not as though beautiful prose and, uh, you know, narrative clarity can't coexist, but sure. they shouldn't get in the way of each other. And yeah. being able to figure out how to reconcile those two things in my young adult literature, I think is actually the thing that helped prepare me the most for writing Goliath, um, oddly yeah. enough where you know it at least while i was drafting it so many of the or at least while i was working on it and expanding the draft that i had um so many of the sentences were the exactly the types of sentences i've spent my entire career trying to get away with writing yeah now that goliath is complete it's been out in the world for 10 months or something how do you feel about it is your feeling about the story changed at all i i love it's the best thing i've written it still feels like the best thing i've written and uh, there's there's an incredible amount of satisfaction that that comes with that pride, but more importantly, satisfaction. It's you know I I may not have realized it to this extent at the time, but it's one of those things where okay, if I never get to write another book, um, heaven forbid, uh, at least I wrote Goliath, right? Like it's 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 like that book. It's like okay, I got I got it out of me. I was. I was operating literally at the height of my powers. It, yeah. it it is me at the very, 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 you know, frontier of my abilities, and I pulled it off. And I'm happy now to just let it live in the world. Um, yeah. And yeah, like I, you know, if anything, that sensation has only deepened the more time okay. has passed. Yeah. Well, with uh, Goliath out in the world and with publishing being an inexorable machine, <laughs> do you, what are you working on now? What do you have coming up? Is there something in, in, in the works or is it all still a little bit uh, unclear at this point as to what, what happens next? So, um, you know, currently, you know, working on a thing, waiting for feedback from my my agent, but part of the motivation for writing it, and I'll get to the details of it in, in sure, sure, sure. a little bit, but part of the motivation for writing it is that I've I've always felt compelled to write a book that was in many ways the polar opposite of the book that came before. Uh, so uh, Goliath uh, is was written very much not in revenge against Riot Baby, but you know, given that Riot Baby was focused so much on constriction and brevity yeah. and claustrophobia, I wanted to write something much more expansive, much more mm-hmm. not just physically bigger 
but with a greater emotional range. You know, Goliath is some sure. of the funniest stuff that I've written. I've, you know, there yeah. are times where I've never laughed harder while writing when, you know, I was writing certain scenes in Goliath. And now the thing that I'm working on is much more, uh, you know, in terms of the 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 dyad of narrative clarity and prose. I'm attempting to flip it now to write a story yeah. where the prose is a bit more spare. The prose is, is more utilitarian. Um, and the story has a, a much more easily discernible plot. <laughs> so <laughs> essentially it is a, um, it is a fantasy noir set in an ancient second world, West African kingdom that is currently caught up in a wave of French uh, colonization. And so I get to deal in all the naughty themes of, of, of race and power and all of that stuff that is my Balawick, but um, doing it in the confines of a, of a noir or a detective novel uh, was really funny. Like I actually having a plot is fun. It's really, <laughs> it's really, it's really, really fun. And I don't know that I could have located that, that particular, uh, you know, place of fun in my previous work. But uh, yeah, no, so I'm having, I'm having a bit of a blast with this one. That's fantastic. So I'm guessing that if the world is kind, that's a 2024 kind of thing. So actually 2025, although, you know, the, okay. the date, you know, how publishing is, things are always fungible. Sure, so, so uh, aiming for 2025, partly uh, to allow me more time to work on it, but also to let Goliath have a bit of a longer tail as well. Yeah. Um, part of the reason I, I migrated from young adult to adult literature was so that I could get away from the book a year, you know, or yeah. book every two years type of cycle really just like decompress and relax and be able to continue to produce works of quality. Yeah. The year is segueing to a close. So let me ask you, uh, do you have any particular favorite holiday reads or f favorite things that you do at this time of year? Oh my goodness. So it's, <laughs> I don't know how or why this started, but ever since I was a kid, ever since I was a kid, our family has gotten together to watch it's a wonderful life yeah. the i who's the frank capra right frank he capra. was the yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the the jimmy stewart movie it's i've watched that movie so many times that <laughs> i oh, there are whole chunks that i can quote from memory and it to me is the quintessential christmas movie and it's also this incredible feel feel good movie that doesn't seem to have within it a hint of cynicism, which is incredibly sure. difficult to come across in this day and age. Everything, even the most uplifting and reaffirming pieces of media that I come across these days have that, that undercurrent of cynicism. I think part of it might be the sort of post 9-11 like mindset mm -hmm. that we've been in ever since then. Like that's how that trauma has has sort of you know, metastasized in the, in the collective psyche, but to have come across, and it's, it's, what's interesting about that too, is that sometimes it infects how you look at stuff from the past. And so sure. even though, you know, something like the matrix 
came out in 1999, I can't help but look at it through the lens of a post 9-11 movie. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. you know, things like that. But It's a Wonderful Life manages to be trapped in this bit of amber where cynicism can't penetrate, irony can't penetrate. And it's just there and beautiful and re- like it's oh I love it so 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 much and so it's one of those one of those odd traditions that my Nigerian family has gravitated yeah. towards over and over and over again uh, through the years. So I'm very much looking forward to uh, this year's holiday viewing. Now let me ask you just about that though, because it occurs to me. Do you think that con- that connection to the story and its imperviousness to cynicism? In your uh, when you experience it, is because of what's innate to the story, or because the fact you, that you've had a continuous exposure to it over time, and so that is what actually kind of like lays it down, like it predates consistently that experience. That's a very fascinating question because I do believe, um, to your point, that some of my adoration of that movie is its ability to transport me to an earlier self viewing that movie. Uh, mm-hmm. it's laden with so much memory of previous viewings. Uh, there is that sort of emotive layer cake that that I get to chomp into every time I watch this movie. There's this, it's that, it's that, you know, sort of mnemonic transportation. And um, I do believe there's some of that. You know, it's often why I look at the 90s as like such a halcyon time. It was because I was a kid during that time. It wasn't, it wasn't fantastic for everyone i mean but like you know to me it's always you know you know i'll see i'll see like a tamagotchi or whatever and it's always a totem of a much simpler smaller time and much kinder time too and and yeah like it i i do think to your point there is something bottled up in the viewing experience of it's a wonderful life that does lend itself to the ability to shrug off that cynicism and that that you know persistent sense of irony where you can just be sentimental and you can just like yeah. be motivated out of pure love of fellow humanity like sure. you feel that 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 is the the foundation for so many of the social relationships in yeah. that movie even when people are being mean to each other it does it feels different from when people are mean to each other now <laughs> <laughs> Do you find yourself drawn to that in your own storytelling? I wish. Oh, my goodness. I wish I were capable of writing uh, purely sentimental, unironic, um, non-cynical <laughs> stories. I, I mean, I do think that there, there is one, there's one story in particular that I've written that I feel achieves that. Uh, there was this anthology, Black Boy Joy, that I was asked to be a part of um, a number of years ago. Yep. And, you know, the theme is is pretty obvious from the title. And, uh, you know, for a bit, I, I struggled on trying to figure out what to what to write about. But then I, you know, I just transported myself to those instances in my past where I felt exactly Perfect. what the title and the theme um, were demanding of me. And so I wrote this story about this boy who loves skateboarding. And mm-hmm. he has to go on this emotional journey where at first that love of skateboarding is is bound up with the promise of uh, individual accolade and praise mm-hmm. and and performance, but then starts to migrate into the act of being of service to others 
and skateboarding yeah. to improve the lives of other people. And it, it just felt like such a heartwarming story. And I was so surprised that it came out of me. I was so surprised <laughs> that it came out of me. Um, but it's one of my, it's one of my proudest achievements. It's one of my absolute proudest achievements. And it's so funny because I, I feel in my art consumption that I am drawn to all the, all the dark stuff. Like sure, I watch and, and read like 92% dark, what could be called dark stuff. And then the remaining 8% is, is, you know, Abbott elementary, right? (laughs) (laughs) We all know that. Oh my goodness. It's so necessary. But, um, uh, I find that if I'm able to to produce something that that could provoke in others the same feeling I get watching Abbott Elementary, then I've like achieved, like the, I've 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 accomplished the greatest thing that I have within me to accomplish. <laughs> so, do you think somewhere down the road there's a Tochi Onyobuchi Christmas story? Oh my goodness, yes, yes. I would love for that. I would love for that to be the case. I would love for that to be the case. Um, I just have to to get to a place spiritually where I'm able to pull that off. <laughs> well, I, I hope it comes sooner than later. But for the moment, I'd like to thank you very much for making the time to talk to us today, and I wish you a very, very happy holidays. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure and an honor, and I wish exactly the same to you.